my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you are listening to the Important Cinema Club, and today we're talking about smooth, creamy, Milky Way Image. Milky Way Image is a Hong Kong film production and distribution company that is, I guess since the 1997 handover, the reunification of Hong Kong and mainland China that marked the end of the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, has been the sort of artistic standard bearer of popular Hong Kong film. Would that be fair to say? I absolutely agree with you. And I think that if anybody is even a little bit curious about Hong Kong cinema and has seen any movie post 97 from there, they've probably seen the Milky Way image logo because it's a company that was co-founded by Johnny Toe. So in the late 90s, a perfect storm of conditions led to the decline of Hong Kong's film industry. An economic recession in Asia, rampant piracy, heavy competition from American blockbusters like Jurassic Park, for example. Also, a lack of new young talent to make up for all of the aging star actors and directors who, many of whom were relocating to Hollywood. What are you talking about? Ekin Chen was still around? The twins? Edison Chen? Oh, well, we don't talk about him. Uh, People look that up if you want to know the controversy behind Edison Chen. There was, of course, also a huge sense of anxiety surrounding the 1997 reunification of Hong Kong and the mainland. Some Hong Kong companies during this period sought to chase audiences with bigger spectacle and ballooning budgets. They paid the price for this. But another company, founded in 1996, adapted to the times by making quality genre movies on limited budgets in resourceful ways. And most importantly, the way that they approached it is that they had their passion projects, which were often crime-related movies that were dark, neo-noir. I think that one of the big inspirations of someone like Johnny Toe is Jean-Pierre Melville, The Red Circle, and Le Samurai. And then, you know, you still got to pay the bill somehow. If those films are not that successful, you make a bunch of romantic comedies where Andy Lau, for example, gets in the the makeup of a large man. (laughs) Yeah, so there are, you know, roughly, you could say there are two sorts of Milky Way movies. I mean, there are many kinds, but, but there are two mainstream. The romantic comedies that do very well domestically and the crime movies, which do pretty well domestically, have a sort of cult following, but play at international festivals, get international distribution. And specifically, they play international film festivals and they may get distribution, but it is a very niche one. It is not one that is like cracking or paying the bills in any way. And a lot of those crime films, like, for example, Johnny Toe's like The Mission was done very quickly in two weeks, while something like PTU was shot over I think a four year period picking up pieces here or there so it was really an organization mostly it was founded by two people Wakai Fei and Johnny Toe who co-directed a bunch of films in you know their golden eras but I, when people think about it they mostly think of the guiding hand of Johnny Toe. Right and we did a Johnny Toe episode years ago and it's kind of hard to do an episode about Milky Way without making it the Johnny Toe episode mm-hmm. again because. Well, it will always be reflecting his style like Mm -hmm. did he get involved you know what did he impose on the project especially when you talk about early Milky Way movies and Johnny Toe has come out and gone hey somebody's uh, name is on this movie but I actually directed it which he does a lot and which I'm willing to believe is probably true Mm -hmm. to some degree or other specifically we're talking about uh, Patrick Yeo's movies uh, The Odd One Dies Expect the Unexpected and The Longest Night which Johnny Toe in interviews has said oh yeah he was my assistant director but those are really my movies 
movies. So I've always liked Johnny Toe, by the way, but he's somebody. Love him. Yeah, but he's somebody who I think I've liked him more and more as the years have gone on. Like I, I really like him now. But the, <gasps> we got to do just like romantic comedies of Johnny Toe. Oh man, I, I'd love to because I've I still haven't quite warmed up to those. Really, some I of them I like. like I don't know them. because when we talk about these Milky Way image movies, I think that what you have in them is a kind of dedication to the craft and trying to push and find interesting ways to tell these things. These are not like, oh, you know, we spent all our time on the crime ones and then we just kind of like poop out these romantic comedies. Mm. Like Johnny Toe is present in all of the romantic comedies that he makes, even though that, you know, later on and they're more mainland co-productions about wealth and yeah, no interest in those ones. Well, where do you, I just out of curiosity, not to digress too much, but where do you see his kind of presence in the romantic comedies? Oh, just kind of the blocking and there's always a little bit of sense of fatalism to them as well. Mm. Like if I see a scene and certain camera moves, I can point and go, oh, Johnny Toe directed that. Right. Because he has a very distinct style to the way that he approaches these kind of things. But you know, like when I was a teenager getting really into Hong Kong movies, you know, I loved the sort of Jackie, Sammo, John Woo stuff. Right. So you're looking for Hong Kong films that reflect that like. Yeah. And chasing a dragon of an old style, because I'm not sure what happened around 1997, but there was there was an old energy. Um, Hollywood. And- Hollywood happened. Yeah. And a lot of things happened. Yes. But there was an old energy and you could feel it if you watch 10, pick 10 Hong Kong movies, not just action movies, but 10 Hong Kong movies out of a hat from the 80s. And there's this like dynamic energy that runs through all of them. And that's replaced around the turn of the millennium by something else. And are the- you trying to say that like downtown torpedoes, China Strike Force <laughs> are not good movies? There is a a different mm-hmm. kind of energy. And I think the like the Milky Way movies are the best representation of that energy. Well, I think that the Milky Way image movies and Johnny Toe's filmography is always in opposition to John Woo stuff. So mm-hmm. anytime he even, you know, gets really close to John Woo, for example, A Hero Never Dies, which is using like the iconography of slow motion and two guns. He's trying to impose something different on it, whether it be in that movie's duality or the gunfights playing kind of more like languid dreams than the kineticism of John Woo. I'm maybe being a little imprecise here, but the sort of maximalism that defines 80s, 90s Hong Kong action gets replaced by something closer to minimalism. Especially in the cinema of Johnny Toe. Like Milky Way will give you very tight, judiciously mounted action scenes that are as much about the camera, the editing, the soundtrack as the action, Mm -hmm. like the on-screen action. Um, There's also like you know, in Johnny Toe's movies, but also in pretty much most of the movies that we watched on this episode, like they're very nocturnal, they're quiet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes they're very loud, but oftentimes they're very quiet. And they're not slow-paced at all, but the emotions are at a lower register. I wonder if like these kind of feelings are something that Johnny Toe came to after decades working in television, where he does have to be regimented. He has no time, and he has to pick his things very carefully. And instead of becoming a guy that's like, set up three cameras and shoot, he became a uh, creator of exactitude, Mm -hmm. of like, it needs to be this specific way, and I can't imagine any other way, and because television always has to play the emotions very broad, because you're going to the cheap seats movies can play it much closer to the chest well yeah and you know you compare it to like 
uh, I don't know, just to pick a classic example, like Police Story, which seems to unfold all over the city of Hong Kong, hard boiled also, you know, just like it, like Hong Kong is exploding in these movies. The, the Hong Kong is being taken over by a production. Um, in these Milky Way movies, it's almost kind of the inverse. Like Hong Kong is dense and packed and uh, it's a tough, alienating in a really glass and steel kind of way. I mean, Infernal Affairs was a real trend setting movie and in, in you know, defining this vibe. So let's talk about Intruder from 1997, first off. And I'll say each movie that we mention uh, on this podcast, I tried really hard to make the ones that like Johnny Toe has not said he directed and are also not in the crime genre. Well, this movie, Intruder, was directed by uh, Chang Ken Chong, who I think this is a, his only directorial credit. He was a writer, principally. Yeah. Wrote a lot of Stephen Chow films, for example. The star of this one is Wu Qianlian, who is best known as uh, one of the stars of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. And A Moment of Romance, the Andy Lau uh, and her movie that Johnny Toe has claimed, I directed half of that. And in this one, she acts very strongly against type. She's a sex worker who flees Taiwan to Hong Kong, kills another sex worker, assumes her identity, and then goes to one of this sex worker that she's killed, her regular Johns, uh, goes to his goes to his house, ties him up, abducts him. Uh, and it's and yeah, it's a home invasion abduction thriller. Now, this is the meanest movie we're going to be talking about today. It is vicious. Well, it's a category three film. And for those who don't know, category three is the Hong Kong equivalent of NC-17. Mm-hmm. But usually, you know, that has been, I think, co-opted by North American audiences as like a genre in of itself. And there are, you know, tropes that go along with it. This one, not specifically. There isn't that kind of like leering nature to it. It's mostly misery it feels kind of like a french extremity movie yeah so this movie comes within a year of the founding of milky way Uh, it does feel like a sort of transition movie between something and something else like it's part of the category three wave of movies where it's like has some very extreme violence some very extreme emotional content as well Uh, not really extreme sexual content but certainly heavy implied sexual Mm. content and like the acting is like like wu chen len's performance is like very big Mm. uh, which you don't necessarily see in some of the Johnny Toe movies and like we should emphasize that it's mostly her she kidnaps a guy in his house his legs are broken because she ran him over with a car and then she is waiting for her husband to come and so they can assume this man's identity and then go on with their lives because they're wanted for murder right I mean what it has in common with some of the later Milky Way movies is uh, the sort of tightness of its focus and location it's kind of extreme stylishness and it's nocturnal ambiance. It's also undeniable that almost all the movies that we're talking about in this early period are reflections of filmmakers that are dealing with the handover to China. Yeah. And like, so should you be reading into this one? Like the fear of the other coming into your lives? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there are so many Hong Kong movies of the 1990s that have invited this sort of reading because I mean, they're so drenched in, you know, uh, subtext, especially the cinema of Johnny Toe's compatriots like Choi Hark. Well, one of the classic examples is Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together, where it's shot on literally the other side of the world from Hong Kong to convey something of the sense of alienation, the the sense of uh, the loss of the loss of a familiar space. 
Happy Together ends with that montage of the Hong Kong streets Mm. that's meant to convey a sort of like farewell to something, as well as that movie was about a gay couple, which, you know, was obviously a, a matter of concern in the reunification. But you can see that that's not all directly commenting on it. It's just a sort of oblique, mm-hmm. uh, refracted uh, something or other. But a it. film like Intruder can also just be a representation metaphorically of how people feel this kind of loss and misery. There is no victories really in Intruder. There's no. maybe a little one at the end and I had completely forgotten it because you're so battered around for the rest of the movie. But like this is a film that it feels like a final film, which is really funny that it's not only a directorial debut, but one of the first films that a new company is putting out. A lot of the Milky Way movies... Uh, This is a very cliche thing to say. I'm sorry to say it, but Hong Kong is a character in them, Mm -hmm. not just on screen, but sort of the situation of being a Hong Kong filmmaker, the situation of having a Hong Kong film company in the late 90s and the 2000s is like part of the text or at least part of the subtext in some way. A lot of these movies are sort of experiments in how do you make a movie like this in the current system. I mean, Hong Kong is a is just a city. It it has a relatively small population. So so if you want to make a movie without, you know, acquiescing to the de, the censorship demands of the mainland, you have to make it under a certain budget level. Do you think like Intruder, uh, they're like winking at the audience is like, we actually mean these are mainland people, but we can't say that within the current context. Maybe. I mean, maybe. Um, because you know, like, you know, the Hong Kong's big market is Taiwan and it's like you have Taiwanese villains coming in and killing Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, every now and then there are some, sometimes I'll read a review on Letterboxd, like Anne Hui had a movie out last year that was like a kind of historical movie. Uh, I forgot what it was called, but I saw this Letterboxd review and maybe, maybe it's accurate, but you know, it was saying something like, ah, well maybe this, this is actually a metaphor for the resilience of the Hong Kong people uh, in the face of, uh, but, but it's actually a mainland propaganda blockbuster. But like, cause we, and then I look at that and I think maybe that's true or maybe, or maybe if it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. But like we watch what white storm three. Yeah. Right. And like that movie ends with people flying in a plane and going, I miss home. Like, is that just part of the... uh, Well, we know what Herman Yao thinks. Yes. But like, because he's the Hong Kong through and through, though. Right. But then he makes Man Lane Productions, you know, and he jumps between both of them. Well, and I guess we also know what Johnny Toe thinks because we've seen him talk. We've read his interviews. I mean, he's censored on the uh, Chinese message boards. Well, his movie Drug War, which I think is one of his best movies. I'm sure you probably do, too. You know, that was a movie that was a mainland co-production and was you know, has all of the follows all of the demands and yet seems if you look at it seems to be completely uncompromised Mm -hmm. uh, or at least seems to be very strong within the within the context. He basically says he disowns it. Any mainland production that he made is not by definition of his. Yes. And he hates working within that system, which is kind of remarkable to me, given what he's been able to accomplish in it. He's mm-hmm. made some great films, but nevertheless, we're throwing Johnny Toe back to the side because we have to talk about more Milky Way image movies like Hooked on You from 2007. So this is interesting. This movie was a part of a wave of movies that marked the 10th anniversary of the reunification. And oh, so it's a, yeah, we're really glad to be back, right? Well, like a lot of those movies, it doesn't directly comment on the reunification, but it takes place against the backdrop of a rap 
rapidly changing and often tumultuous 10-year period. So I picked this movie because it was a romantic comedy and it wasn't directed by Johnny Toe. It was actually directed by one of his protégés, La Wing Chung. And it has a cover that me and Will would go to Chinese DVD stores and we, we would see all these romantic comedies of like two stars standing back to back, arms crossed, like looking at each other. And I see them and I say, not for me. And then yes. I go right past. But I started watching this one and I was like, wait a minute, is this going to be a little different? I mean, right off the bat, when you synopsize it, it takes place over 10 years. Yeah. So I really like this movie. I did too. It stars Miriam Young as a girl who works tirelessly at a neighborhood fish market where she's trying to pay off the debts of her gambling father and maybe, maybe rise out of her uh, lower working class lifestyle. And her romantic uh, soon-to-be partner, maybe, is played by Ethan Chan, introduced not wanting to pay a sex worker. <laughs> right. He plays a fish man who's a bit of a jerk. And, uh, you know, she has a bit of a testy relationship with Fishman, which warms as the movie goes on, even though their their unification is anything but assured. Mm-hmm. And even uh, though you would expect it, it is a romantic comedy. They're standing back to back on the poster, smiling at each other. And all of this takes place against the backdrop of, you know, for example, gentrification in Hong Kong, uh, the SARS crisis. Mm-hmm. You remember SARS? We yep. had that here in Toronto. <laughs> yep, we did. You know, you get all these moments highlighting of choices people make in their lives lives places that they want to go all shot beautifully. oh so good you see a movie like this and you're like hong kong can't do this why don't we just put the camera down and shoot it well i mean the the atmosphere of hong kong you know like the way there's that one shot where the camera is at once like it's hong kong in this movie as in real life is a is a city of you know huge high rises densely packed with we assume we've never been so yeah yeah (laughs) densely packed with one bedroom apartments you remember that one shot where it's like the camera's on one and then it like you know, picks up and swirls through the courtyard to like mm-hmm. another window, like, you know, the atmosphere of Hong Kong, this like dense atmosphere. Or just very like strong. the market that they work in. And there's like 30 people, you know, all of them, you know, everything that they're doing. And mm-hmm. you watch them go through this 10 period, uh, you know, story throughout their lives as things change, things close down, they have to move on with their life. But what do the connections that they've been making up to there mean within the grander context? And it is a very affecting kind of universal story. Mm-hmm. You know, you can watch this and think about, you know, your own city your own life i wonder like i don't know if this was a hit because like it is not a poison pill but kind of a you know straight ahead one by the end of the movie it's melancholy for sure um and i also think it's very funny even though most of the humor is probably right above our heads any kind of local references or verbal comedy so uh what is uh is the fish stand a metaphor for hong kong no i don't think so i just think that it's what's a metaphor for hong kong here i mean the market itself like the entire the and the idea at the end of like can we bring it back together and it's like not really all things must pass yeah and is that the is that uh, China's fault or is that just the the perpetual motion of time? You know, who knows? I am not at liberty to say. You know, <laughs> a movie like this, though, I watch it and I wonder, like, it's weird during that period, like post Emily, that like no distributor would pick up this film and be like, hey, would you want to see this like Hong Kong romantic comedy? I feel like it could still work within like an an international market. I think so, too. But there's something about it. And I, I, I mean this in the best possible way. Like it is it is appealingly slight like it i think it is an important film i think it has a lot to say but it it doesn't insist upon itself no it presents as basically a sort of light romantic comedy with a bunch of light characters and th- there's a lot that there's a lot that you could sort of infer 
and read on to it that it's not necessarily announcing. And, but I think that that lightness is what would make it appealing mm. to like audiences that were going through Roger's video and would see all of these like French imports post Emily and be like, I just want a romantic comedy that's kind of in that vein. Because uh, La Wing Chong, oh boy, he keeps the camera moving in this one. There's a sense of propulsion and energy that you really don't usually get in these kind of romantic comedies. So just getting back to Milky Way's business model, in its early years, like it began with movies like Intruder, you know, dark crime movies, A Hero Never Dies, another example, The Odd One Dies. The cold, austere style of those early movies was still a minority taste. Uh, and so by the turn of the millennium, the business model was originally, you know, you've got these other studios like Golden Harvest who have, you know, Jackie Chan and Jet Li and Chow Yun-Fat and all that. We'll have a sort of rep company of second tier actors, which doesn't mean second rate, just like less less financially popular ones. People like Simon Yam, Anthony Wong. But then they had like Andy Lau on their roster who started a bunch of their movies. Well, that that's important. Yeah, that's a switch. That was in 1999. The early movies, I guess we were making money, but not enough money. They had they had to acquiesce in some way to the public demand for stars. So they got Andy Lau and they had him appear in Running Out of Time. And then they had him appear in several very popular romantic comedies. Needing You being like the big one that made them a ton of money. And then Love on a Diet in which he wore a fat suit. But what's funny about Andy Lau is that like he makes all of these movies for them that are, you know, straight down the middle. They will appeal to like your mom, your dad, whoever. And then they turn around and they're like, hey, you like Love on a Diet, don't you? How about Running on Karma? Like the weirdest film Milky Way ever made. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I guess it's just their kind of taste. They can't continue to go down that same path mm -hmm. that they need to. Even Andy Lau, I'm sure, is like, can I do one of the weird ones? Even Blind Detective mm -hmm. is like so odd, that being a Johnny Toe-directed one as well. So Motorway from 2012. I'd never seen this one before. I actually didn't even know about this movie. I Justin, was very surprised. Justin recommended it. I probably, uh, when I said it, I was like, I'm sure Will has seen it because I've recommended it before. Nope. Uh who directed this one? Soi Chang is one of my favorite Hong Kong directors working to this day. He's been in the trenches forever. His first film was in 1999 and he directed like horror movies with titles like Horror Hotline, Big Head Monster, or The Death Curse starring the twins, the pop stars. <laughs> and eventually he was able to, I think, gain enough control and make the movies that he wants to make, which are very downer, fatalistic and miserable but then he'll turn around and go hey mainland china here's a monkey king movie i made three of them <laughs> like in between a real like one for them one for me ethos this movie is a kind of best case scenario of you know a hong kong genre movie after the turn of the millennium it has a completely stock plot the older cop played by Anthony Wong, who's, you know, just days away from retirement. And you've got the younger cop played by Sean Yu, bit of a hothead, you know, uh, Sean Yu is uh, uh, there's there are particular kinds of like traffic cops, basically, who are the invisible squad. Yeah, they're mostly just there to kind of see how fast you're going and maybe take a photo of your license plate so they can give you a ticket. But there's a famous legendary getaway driver played by Gu Zhaodong. Uh, perhaps a mainland actor. <laughs> and the movie becomes a sort of a cat and mouse, you know, car chase picture between so, Sean Yu and when him. When I always pitch Motorway, 
way. I'm always very specific of like, you know, you like Walter Hill, you like the driver. This is what that is. But then like kind of twisting it in a way that you don't expect where the main dramatic conceit of this film that the young hotshot is trying to achieve is to turn an impossibly tight corner. Yes. That's what he's training for the entire movie. It's sort of the inverse of the last five Fast and the Furious movies. Mm -hmm. It's a car chase movie in tight claustrophobic spaces one of the best scenes in the movie is in a hong kong parking garage a packed parking garage yes first of all it's beautifully photographed like the best digital photography i've seen in a hong kong movie many hong kong movies these days look horrible but this one looks good <laughs> many you mean most all of them? <laughs> most but this one like has this just like really cool digital sheen to it mm -hmm. um but like the scenes in the parking garage where the cars are just like burning rubber or surrounded, smoke surrounded like by smoke just trying to turn a corner but they're all you know that kind of hong kong ethos of action scenes of like it's all about the little things like turning into gravel so it'll throw it up in the face of the person chasing you or creating smoke so they don't know where you are in right. the parking garage or like the early scene on the hong kong motorway where you know it's not about how much distance is covered it's about how do you get between two cars how do you get a, get in front of one other car uh, and that's amazing. I, I don't think I've seen a car chase movie like that. No, I don't think any of them have the kind of guts to like, you know, you don't need excess to excite an audience. You just need a goal that is clearly, you know, presented to an audience. And then how do you get around? And like you watch this movie and like, I'm not joking. Like it's the car at one point gets stuck in a corner and the person being chased goes around it and our hero cannot do it. Yeah. And it's just like, how does he get around that corner? Now, do I understand how cars work? Absolutely not. Doesn't matter because <laughs> the movie communicates it to me in a way that I understood. And it's like, oh yeah, now we can do it because he does this. And like the cast is great. You know, Anthony Wong's a yeah. great actor and they have exactly as much character as they need mm -hmm. and they give exactly as much as yep. they need to do. 90 minutes, the chase, it's done. <laughs> like, and, like, and, you're and, out. and like the whole movie is a sort of perfect metaphor for what Milky Way does at its best. Mm -hmm. You know, just a really tight, compact little movie in a tight, compact little city. And then we also watched another Soi Chang film that came out just last week. Yeah. Fate. Yeah. So this one, um, very peculiar, mm -hmm. uh, very strange plot. Now, it almost <laughs> feels like you know, the last few films that Milky Way guys like Wakai Fai have been making, like the only way that they can kind of communicate their emotional state is that the people are just off their rocker. Mad Detective, for example, and Wakai Fai just directed one recently. Oh, I don't have the title in front of me, but it was again about another kind of mad detective kind of character. And here, everyone is mad. Right. Basically. So when we were talking about how the emotional register of these movies is a lot lower than the golden age of Hong Kong, mm -hmm. that's not the case with this movie. The, the performances <laughs> are very big in this one. Yeah. So Mad Fate is about a, I a guess, fortune, fortune teller. teller. Yeah. Who, a fortune teller in direct communication with God, it appears. Who wants to help people, you know, get over their doomed fate. The idea that like, I read your fortune, you're going to die, but I can help you get around that in very dangerous seeming ways. And it seems that he fails pretty consistently. Yes. And <laughs> that he then meets... By the way, that's the setup for the plot, okay? Yeah. It's pretty wild. I mean, that's what Soi Chang's uh, bread and butter is, yeah. is just kind of misery. A fortune teller... Fatalism. A fortune teller who can predict people's fate and then tries to tries to save them. So there's there's a sex worker early on who gets murdered. He predicts that she's going to be murdered. Mm -hmm. And he tries to save tries her. Tries to save her, doesn't get there in time. But when he arrives at the scene, there's a, a young delivery man there who's delivering food 
uh, who is extremely excited by the carnage that he sees. Uh, I was so happy to read that this young delivery man is played by a pop star. Fantastic. <laughs> he loved that stuff. And so the our fortune teller hero is able to determine, well, he, he finds out from everyone who knows this young delivery man, this guy's a psychopath. All he can think about is murder. He will eventually murder someone. And the thing is, like, our hero, uh, the fortune teller, he is off his rocker. Like, mm. he, you know, we love that kind of sense in, like, hopping vampire films or any supernatural films that the action choreographers on them would introduce these set of rules that would then kind of, like, make sense within the scene that you're watching. And it's kind of that progression that's really fun. Here, it's a bunch of just stuff thrown at you and like none of it connects with itself and he's just kind of like blabbering all the time you got to do this you got to put a mirror here you got to do i need a tattoo tell me if this is like too much of a generalization but this feels to me more like a sort of like 2000s korean movie like a little bit yeah boy type thing where like the plot is so you know so extreme and the performances are so extreme and much depends on if you're willing to just sort of go along with it and go along with the style which is very energetic in this movie and so what we get is our our hero is trying to keep this young man from committing a murder Mm because he's like you're going to commit a murder and there's also a serial killer going around now if i were with these guys i would say you're talking about murder too much around this guy you're planting (laughs) the seed in his head yes and in classic kind of aggressive way like the young man is shown doing the most taboo thing in mainstream cinema at the beginning, killing a cat, uh. which he went to jail for, I think they say four years for, mm-hmm. and he gets out and it's that he, he's in a fight with himself that he does not want to do these things, but they excite him. Mm-hmm. And he's in this push and pull. And I'm watching the movie and I'm like, how miserable are we going to get here? <laughs> like, <laughs> is it just going to end? Cause I've seen like love battlefield, the sword Chang film ends in such misery at the end. You watch someone drown for like five minutes, like blood coming out mm-hmm. of their mouth. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is this what we're getting here too? This kind of like just crushed under the boot. And that was kind of, what the last movie he made limbo was kind of but this one i was interested in at the end there's you know a little bit of hope at the end yeah like it's not complete misery so i I feel i'm getting the sense that you kind of bounced off this one a little it was too much for i bounced off it a bit but i still like enjoyed it Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's i love that they're making these movies it's ferociously entertaining yes and the style i mean it looks great and it's it's like anti-mainstream as well it's like this is not for a wide audience yeah (laughs) i'll just say that the basic premise of it i Mm -hmm. found a little bit to swallow it, it's also interesting in the sense that like milky way it, it they don't seem like they really exist anymore like a movie every now and then will come out but it's just impossible within the confines of the mainland chinese film censorship bureau well when we return to hong kong cinema at some point which we will mm-hmm. sooner rather than later probably i'd love to investigate the fact that over the last two years Uh, the Hong Kong box office, its domestic releases have experienced a huge revival. You know, for 15, 20 years, uh, all the action has been in Hong Kong mainland co-productions that can access, you know, the vast mainland Chinese market, you know? But I think that the Hong Kong, you know, populace going to the movies are like, we're tired of mainland Chinese blockbusters. Right, and so there are a lot of sort of Cantonese language movies Mm. that are setting box office records right now. Yeah, every like couple weeks it's like, a new Cantonese film has broken all box office records, like Chili Laugh Story, for example. And I'd just like to know, like, what's going on there? Like, mm-hmm. what, what's resonating with these movies? What are they, what are they providing 
the local audience that the mainland movies aren't. Even though I remember one of them that did uh, break all box office records that starred our tan god Louis Koo <laughs> was uh, one that was like very much fashioned off of the kind of mainland cybernetic sci-fi blockbusters, right? Warriors of the Future from 2022 was a huge hit, had been long delayed, and it was, you know, just kind of like a mainland, you know, looking one as well. But yeah. there's other films. So I'd be excited to, you know, discussing that as well. So that's Milky Way Image, yours to discover, mm -hmm. a lot more than just Johnny Toe. And let's do some advertising now because a Blu-ray finally has started shipping. And that is uh, King of the Bullwhip. A little bit delayed, but it was delayed for your pleasure. <laughs> yeah, so Golden Ninja Video's release of King of the Bullwhip, the Ron Ormond classic, uh, took so long to ship because Justin was heroically watching every Poverty Row Western ever made <laughs> to stack it with bonus Poverty Row Westerns. So... When I announced the disc, I said, to be, uh, you know, determined on special features, which I don't like, but I find I'm doing a lot more, especially when it's subjects that I'm like, I'm not that familiar with it. So like Poverty Row Westerns, or, and as I specify on the disc, also B-movie Westerns, because what I learned very quickly is if I'm just recommending Poverty Row ones, like it's a losing battle because <laughs> most of the like really great ones are like Columbia, Universal, but they're still the B-movie units. And so I read so many books. I watched so many movies. And one of the surprising things that I found is that there's not really any sources out there that can talk about these kind of Westerns in a way that's not based in any kind of nostalgia. Like, I just love seeing Johnny Mac Brown because yeah. why would they? They grew up with them. They create attachments to stars, not necessarily particular films. So uh, my goal with this disc was you got King of the Bullwhip, uh, a Ron Orman directed film uh, in that featurette. We recorded so long ago. We're like, can't wait for that book to come out. Can't wait for that book to come out. You have our commentary. You have a featurette we did about Ron Orman, which I think is a great primer as well. And I haven't really seen those kind of primers out there. So we recommend that. Uh, a little featurette of me talking about Poverty Row Westerns. And the way I did it is I picked like five of them. And I talk about directors, companies, and also, you know, the stars of the film. I, I originally thought, I'm like, I'm going to talk about all the stars. And I was doing research and I was like, I'm going, I can't do this. It's too, there's too many of these actors. And then you get five Poverty Row Westerns and they're all different. I put them in the order that I think people should watch them. You got some serious ones like Between Men. You also got uh, a little bit of some weird or kind of straightforward suspense ones like The Silver Bullet. And they have that like, these are Poverty Row films. They're not even from Monogram. They're from companies like uh, Reliable Pictures. Like, what, like you never hear about these companies. And I even found a director that I'm like, this guy needs further research. And he was like a Russian-born, came to uh, Hollywood, did Westerns. And he's got like a little particular style to him as well that like he really popped when I started watching his films. But you will just have to get the disc to know who that director is. So you get King of the Bullwhip. You get five feature films. And... Listen, if you're a Golden Ninja video fan, you know the secret feature hidden on there. So check that out as well. And check deep is what I'll say. Because I told Will what I did. And he's like, you're a madman. Right. So if it took a little while to ship, that's because Justin was sweating blood for you. Okay. And we also have pre-orders for Phantom Kung Fu, uh, a film directed by one of our favorites, Lee So Nam. Lee So Nam, director of such films as The Tattoo Connection, uh, Exit the Dragon, Enter the Tiger. Fist of Fury Part 2. Yeah. Great movie. Uh, also stuff like Kung Fu. Kung Fu Wonder Child, The Hot, The Cool, and The Vicious. Phantom Kung Fu is one of his martial arts films that has never been available in widescreen. Born its original language. And it has been lovingly, not restored, but yeah. preserved. That print is holding on for dear life when you're going to watch it. It's been lovingly preserved from an original Grindhouse print. Mm -hmm. And 
oh man, when you see it, you'll feel like you're on 42nd Street. Yes, absolutely. Commentary by me and Will, video featurettes, uh, booklet. It's all there. Pick it up. Please, please pick it up. It'll be very much appreciated. So moving on to letters, Will. Yeah, do we have any letters? We do have letters. I like to thank uh, people because recently uh, we've just almost been deluged with letters. Great questions as well. Really appreciate it. Did we get shared somewhere? Like that's usually there's like a trigger that we can't always find where suddenly like, you know, we have more listeners than normal. Some uh, famous, yeah, maybe the blank check boys threw us a like. No, I don't think I so. I listened to that podcast. I doubt it. We did, did we get that film spotting bump or something like that? <laughs> film spotting. I remember that. <laughs> Our first question is from Koi, and they ask, Dear Hard-Ass Chief and Sergeant Loose Cannon, <laughs> have you been called Hard-Ass Chief? Uh, wait, are you the Loose Cannon? Or I would assume, I... considering I had a podcast named Loose Cannon, oh, maybe yeah. that's like one of those. No, it wasn't a reference. It's just I wanted to call you that. I'm Hard-Ass Chief because I'm, I'm such a rigorous cineast. <laughs> uh, the letter writer writes, Question one, what value do you see in watching incomplete unfinished films? Be they rough cuts, abandoned works, reconstructions, etc.? I, I love it. I see a lot of value in it, frankly. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, as long as you understand what it is. Yes, that you don't go to it and go like, ha, look how sloppy the editing of this is. Mm. I also like it in contrast to the finished product a lot. Like I like watching work prints of original films, even though... I, I will say, when I go into it, I'm like, there's got to be some drastic changes here. If you give me just another extra two seconds, it ain't worth it to have a whole other work print on this disc. I, am I right that you saw a work print of Spaceballs once? I did. Deeply unfunny. Wow. <laughs> like, I could not believe uh, on 35 millimeter for someone's birthday, they showed Spaceballs. And I was like, oh, The boy. assembly cut. The assembly cut. Oh, man. That was definitely like being test screened around. But that's interesting. And I remember just ragging uh, Peter because I'm like, you thought Spaceballs was funny? <laughs> but like, I've watched Spaceballs since then. It is very funny. It just comedy specifically is like so razor tight. And that's why they do kind of like test screenings and try to get the vibe of the audience. Yeah, one or two frames can make all the exactly. difference. But yeah, unfinished films. I mean, take every movie that Orson Welles didn't finish, just put it out somewhere. Mm. And, it was a silent version of The Deep. And that's fine. Yeah. And that's fine. We understand that it's not complete. Uh, just seeing that footage will be able to teach us something. Uh, a second question is, some movies like to change their medium for a scene or two, like going from animation to live action, 3D animation to classical animation, voice to subtitle. Is this good for emphasis or can it needlessly be distracting? I'm for it, I, I like guess. it, yeah. yeah. I can understand that like, oh, it takes me out of the movie. But oftentimes when they're doing that, they're trying to create kind of like a contrast to what's come before. Mm -hmm. And that's why I always like it, especially if you're using the medium to comment on the form that it is beyond it just being like a joke like oh we're high and now we're puppets or something yeah toss that out i don't need that i've seen that enough right uh examples Ugh, nothing comes right off the top of my head um do you remember there's a scene uh, the first thing that comes into my head and it's really just a joke is do you remember there's a scene in annie hall where he imagines himself as like a cartoon character i don't even he remember imagines that, himself no. on a date with like the mm. wicked queen from snow white yeah and and it's like well, it's just a joke, but that's the one example I can I can think of. Of course, that great scene in Better Off Dead where all the hamburgers sing a song and stuff like <laughs> that in their stop motion. <laughs> Love it. Uh, oh, yeah. the uh, Oh, the scene in... Uh, okay, uh, my all-time favorite example. A 1930s comedy called Hollywood Party, which was assembled out of lots of... It ostensibly all takes place at the same Hollywood party, mm -hmm. but and it has no director credited because it just has, like... It was just shot piecemeal over the course of like a year. Laurel and Hardy are in it. Jimmy Durante's in it. The Three Stooges are in it. And there's also a scene with Mickey Mouse. Uh, Mickey Mouse just shows up and, and does, <laughs> no, does the cartoon. No, a Mickey Mouse or a... The Mickey Mouse. Wow, it's like when... They got him. 
Tom? No, it was Jerry. Which one's the mouse? Dancing was Gene Kelly? Yeah. And Anchors yeah. Ahoy? Anchors Away, Way, yeah. yeah. Uh, I like that scene, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't take you out of it? You were like, where did this mouse well, come the, from? Well, both Anchors Away and, to a greater extent, Hollywood Party are both kind of like uh, variety shows, mm-hmm. you know? You can have a scene like that. And, you know, if you have a very serious movie and you do it like that, it's also a kind of like pulling you out of it and maybe making you think about what oh, you're like, watching. Oh, uh, like, okay, serious, a more serious movie, not that serious, but more serious, Kill Bill, the mm-hmm. animated sequence yes. in the first one. I mean, that that's all about aesthetic and style, and that when you see that, it's like that anime stuff pushed to its like utmost limit. And I think completely works with in the oh, context of the movie absolutely because that whole film is recycling stuff that quentin tarantino likes and just putting it out to a mass audience i remember when kill bill came out that we talked about it on our patreon and i was like this is not going to make any money like <laughs> i mean what am i 12 at this point but like no one's going to get this and then it becomes a huge phenomenon like, because tarantino saw all these different styles and said other people would like this shit too but just not as good as the best version well yeah <laughs> so uh, Wait, th- although if quentin tarantino's listening i just want to say that we're yeah i, I really liked your movie oh Oh, yeah. Sir. Kill Bill 1 and 2. Yeah. And uh, we would like to hang out with you. I'd love to be your friend. Mm. So uh, thank you very much for that letter. And our next one's from John. And he just has a, a, a little bit of a longer letter. And that he says that we have been a boon. He's done Moturn Converts. He watched stuff like uh, Magic Spot or and stuff we recommended, like Who Killed Captain Alex, Mango Shake, oh, Gold Ninja you. Video Film. The whole, the whole lifestyle. Even the Polonia Brothers. I think this is a movie that he mentions, Hallucinations. So I'm glad you're taking the chances on these. Whether they work or not, I hope you get something out of it. And he says he's showing them to the crowd. And Hallucinations, that's a rough one to show to a crowd. <laughs> uh, early Polonia. Uh, he does mention, Will... I've been listening to a lot of old episodes and I miss you doing random impressions. You can't do te- I not still do random impressions? Not really. You can't tell me your Vincent Price wasn't spot on. Been working on any <laughs> new voices? Oh, yeah, I remember I did my Vincent Price. I think it's because we kind of like early on went through all the normal ones. That I you did, would I, do. We did all the people I do impressions of. Okay, let me do some impressions. I want to suck your blood. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Shock I am Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ernie's here. Hey, yo, Adrian. <laughs> Man, friggin' uh, Johnny Carson in The Late Show, a.k.a. Rich Little, is right here. Um, yes, I'm uh, Johnny Carson here, <laughs> yes. All right, all right, do that ventriloquist now. <laughs> what, what, Edgar Bergen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know what he sounds like. Well, you know what? It's time to brush Yeah, up. okay, that'll be my next one. Well, uh, thank you very much for this letter, and if you want to send us letters, you can do so at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. This week on our Patreon, we're back on our bullshit. <laughs> We're going to talk about Jackie Chan again. We're going to talk about Shanghai Noon. Oh, Shanghai Nights. Shanghai Nights. Okay. That's what I want to watch. Shanghai Nights. We'll talk about Shanghai Noon as well. Of course. But listen, we need to do- Chaplin, a- Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> Anything that we buy has to turn into content in some way. So, so that we-, we can write it off on our taxes. Do we buy- uh, both buy. I think I convinced you. It's like you need this this two disc set on Blu-ray. Will yeah. It? So we were in uh, we were in rural Pennsylvania at a Walmart, and I was looking at the uh, two disc Shanghai Noon Shanghai Nights Blu-ray. No, no hesitation for me. I'm like yoink. And yes, I please. was like, oh god, do I need another thing on my shelf? And you said Jackie Chan commentary. I didn't even know we did commentary on Shanghai Noon. Yeah, no. it was Owen Wilson and the director. Yeah, I thought, yeah, I do, I do need this, and it's sitting unwatched right now. Yeah, but well, we're gonna we're watch about, it today. We're watch Shanghai Nights. I don't think I've watched it since it came out on dvd my memory is that it's pretty good yeah that when people talk about it they're like oh jackie can strut most of his stuff we gotta check out the deleted scenes where i know all the action scenes are three times as long so we'll be checking that out on our patreon patreon.com slash the important cinema club and you get the back catalog of like hundreds and hundreds of episodes that we've done so i think we have we reached 200 300 oh man there's a lot on there so check it 
out. And next week, what are we doing, Will? We're talking about Michael Mann. Yeah, we got to throw some meat to the wolves, right? That's right. You people deserve deserve a famous director, but we're going to be talking about his digital period. Yeah, as Will uh, coined it, Digital Man. Uh, he said, like, Wait, let's do Digital Man. And I was like, Hologram Man? What are we, what are we doing? So, uh, Lawnmower Man? Collateral, Miami Vice, Public Enemy, and uh, Black, Black Hat. Hat. Yep. Yes. That's what we'll be talking about next week. So until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to some new patrons, which include Broken Flowers 20, Pete Seeger, Chris Moberly, Cameron Dagg, Jerry Laley, Simon Ennis, Nick, Joshua Green, Christoph, Branson Reese, Jordan Cox, Nick Olson, Fraser H.W., Maria L., Keenan N., Ben Harris, Brooks Harley, Mark, and Caleb Clements. Thank you very much for joining the Patreon. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, I'm going to say something that you've said on this podcast before, mm. but, uh, you know, the next big thing in cinephilia, DVDs. So I was at the old used bookstore this week looking at their DVD rack. I don't even really look at the Blu-rays anymore. No, because you have everything you would want. It's and it's all the same old stuff. Yeah, it it's is. It's like, oh, Despicable Me. Am I going to buy that? I no. think I look maybe every... Mm, two months at BMV versus my every two days when I first moved to Toronto. And I have to say though, there's enough of fines that I'm like, how is this there? That like, I'll remember that and be like, maybe I should flip through it. And I will say that the Blu-rays and DVDs, now they're mostly collectors that are putting them down. That's right. So you find the weirdest stuff. And also a, a store like BMV in Toronto is only taking the good stuff mm -hmm. of DVDs now. Yeah. So like the guy will always tell me when I come to the counter, you have a region free player, right? I'm like, yes, this is why I'm buying this. So this week I'm pawing through the DVDs, you know, seeing all the, all the good like Italian exploitation movies. Yeah, you're you like, know, I don't so need this. Uh, I got a something weird video DVD, the, the adult version of Jekyll and Hyde featuring commentary by David F. Friedman. Ooh, and yes. that's the kind of thing yeah. that commentary track by David F. Friedman, the king of exploitation, the king of the carnies, uh, that has not, you can only get that on the DVD. I like to say there's too many Blu-rays and DVDs. I personally can't keep track. But if Agfa put out like an old something weird catalog title every month with all the special features that were included in the original one, I would be like, yes, please. Yes, please. I think the issue, even though that, let's be honest, it's not really an issue uh, on Blu-ray anymore. Remember when people were like, you can't put standard definition stuff on Blu-ray. Now that's all the labels do that. Like, yeah, they got the shot VHS on video stuff. Yeah. yeah. When people are like, wait, your stuff is not on uh, Gold Ninja Video in high definition. I was like, no, this is the only copy we have. You get to put more stuff on it that way. And that's what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. So like, even though I have to say as someone who I put these on my computer, they're very overinflated in size where it's like, this VHS rip is 20 gigabytes. It's like, they're just trying to fill those discs out. So I'll tell you what else. I saw the Mondo Macabro version of the awful Dr. Orloff Ooh. by Jess Franco yeah. uh, on DVD. It's been released on Blu-ray, of mm, course. By but, Severin, right? Uh, by uh, Kino. Kino, okay. Uh, Boy. It's a, it, we we got to talk about this Jess Franco what stuff. A, what a freak I am that I know all this. <laughs> but I'm looking at this Mondo Macabro one. It's like, Oh, it's got a documentary about Jess Franco on it. A you don't rare think it's been included on anything else? No, I don't think it has. Okay. You know, it's like a BBC documentary from the 90s. What did so. I see recently that was like a Jess Franco stuff? And I was like, enough. Like, come uh, on. Probably just anything. I mean, like, it was like four, they, they're going into the 4K territory, I think is what I was like. Right. And I mean, right. it's not, you know, I don't need to buy all of them. That's fine. Yeah. I need to buy all of them. Yes. I mean, I think every Jess Franco fan, it comes to a point where they're like, eh, yeah, I think I, that's enough. Like my friend had hundreds of DVDs, yeah. Duncan. He had a whole like 
three shelves of just Jeff Franco. The one that I haven't pulled the pulled the trigger, trigger on yeah. is Full Moon released Downtown Heat, which is yeah. his 1990s crime film. Full Moon has been doing a lot of those. I mean, we had to get Night of the Eagles, though, with well, Mark Hamill and Christopher got, Lee. I got Night of the Eagles, and I live to regret it, because it's pretty it's bo- boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, a late period Jess Franco film that's boring? You don't say. And the, But then, you know, you look at Downtown Heat, and it's like, ooh, Jess Franco doing a 90s crime oh, movie. It's probably like shot on video, I like know, he did late in his period. I know that's going to be boring. <laughs> I better get it. <laughs> I, I know that I'm doing real freak behavior when i look at you know the image entertainment late 90s release of the max fleischer superman cartoons yes it's ten dollars and it's like hmm i bet these look a little bit they probably have more grain they probably have more grain because they screwed up the uh, transfers that warner did which wasn't archived it was a different department that did the uh that's right max fleischer superman uh, animated shorts right so i got the image entertainment max fleischer superman never gonna watch it though i did watch i did did watch it though yeah a few weeks ago i had a really it was great yeah yeah. They just image entertainment. They probably got um, copies that they scan, right? And they yeah. put out on the market. I miss image entertainment. Where, who did they get swallowed up by? Some somebody. Somebody, but they continued as image entertainment for a while. Mm-hmm. Back in the late '90s, they used to release like all the silent films. You know, they were basically like Flickr Alley and Kino and Vinegar Syndrome all in one. Wait, can we talk about film masters? Which is like what the film detective label has morphed into. Right. Which they. I mean, I haven't gotten, I don't know if any of their Blu-rays have come out yet, have they? But they've announced like 30, it seems. Yeah, that's right. So they've announced all of these Roger Corman movies. Yeah, well, they're doing, they don't say it, but it's all the public domain films that they're putting out. But supposedly new scans. Restored from vault elements. Now, someone asked me, what does archival mean? And I said, doesn't really mean anything. It means whatever the person that is putting it down, like it's not in regular circulation. Like if I bought a print and I put it on a shelf and didn't give it to anybody in 10 years, like that's an archival print technically like so but you know what stuff like you know they're doing roger corman the auteur uh the terror and little shop of horrors which we did a golden video blu-ray which is amazing i hope everybody listening to this has it but i'm very happy to get high definition versions of them well we were not the first people to put out the terror we will not be the last (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're not claiming that we are the uh first people to do it they have the whole team because it's ballyhoo motion pictures see courtney joiner love that guy Mm -hmm. uh who does like all the talking head stuff Stuff. And I'm glad a company has finally figured out, wait, people will pay money for these public domain movies if we do special editions of them, which is something that companies kind of avoided because they were like, why would we do this if it's so readily available? But then a little upstart named Gold Ninja Video. Ah, comes yes, in it the- all comes back to Gold Ninja. Yeah. Well, you can never have too many copies of Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors. No, I can't. Or they, aren't they doing like a Scarlet Letter adaptation that has clearly gone in the public domain? Yeah, I guess so. Love it. I love that they're finally like Film Detective, a company that has always been doing these kind of scans, but I've been putting them on kind of expensive manufactured on demand DVDs are finally going like all right we're putting them out in deluxe editions the boutique market as it lasts i don't know how many years it has left how many years do you think the boutique market has left i mean it's hanging on pretty strong who knows yeah who knows that we're gonna keep putting them out until physical media just goes away forever it'll it'll last until the companies that manufacture blu-ray players stop yes (laughs) and who knows when that'll happen but i hear dvds going back to your first point still a pretty big market like people still buy and dvds still outsell blu-rays yeah like like four to one yeah like people are still consuming it like there is a you know group of people streaming is just not of any interest to them and you know they'd rather go red box do that stuff to watch their movies how else do all those terrible action films continue to survive (laughs) thank you red box